And as you said, uh, only EUV, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines can be used to craft these very tiny seven nanometer chip features. Or so we thought this news out of mainland China certainly could cause some bumps in the road, at least in the short to midterm for ASML. I feel like they're heading on to an episode of Pawn Stars. Today, we're going to focus on the upcoming IPO for Arm Holding, which we know that has been anticipated by many investors, but will we be purchasing any shares of this IPO when it comes out? We'll delve into that a little later, but first we're going to talk about Huawei's new phone, the Mate 60 Pro. And the reason this is interesting is because it has a seven nanometer chipset in it, which can only be made with EUV lithography, or can it? We'll discuss that in this video and why this is of note to us as investors. Nick, tell us about Huawei's new phone. Yes, Casey, this news came out not because there was a press release from Huawei on this, but because there was a device teardown by Tech Insights. They're very good at taking devices, pulling them apart, and figuring out where all of the parts inside of the device came from. And so when they opened up the Mate 60 Pro, they found this 7 nanometer processor in there called the Kirin 9000. And apparently it looks like this was probably manufactured by SMIC, Semiconductor Manufacturing International in mainland China. And as you said, Casey, this is a big deal. A seven nanometer chip It's a very powerful processor that's used to power the, the high-end line of these phones on par with other flagship devices that have Qualcomm Snapdragon chips in them, Apple iPhones. And as you said, uh, only EUV, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, can be used to craft these very tiny seven nanometer chip features. Or so we thought, because all the way back in 2000, the US and Dutch governments had actually barred ASML Holding, the only company that has extreme ultraviolet lithography equipment, it banned them from sending those EUV machines to mainland China. So going on three years now, no EUV equipment sold to mainland China. And yet it appears that SMIC was still able to craft these seven nanometer chips. Previously, their most advanced node was 14 nanometers, but those can be made with previous generation deep ultraviolet lithography equipment but they figured out a way to do it without the EUV, just using the DUV equipment. We're going to show you a clip from a video that we did back in December of 2022. We wanted to give you a rundown about what the difference is between DUV and EUV. So watch this clip and we'll be right back with some more details. Can you explain a little bit about how complex these machines actually are? Okay, so to say extreme ultraviolet chip manufacturing equipment is complex is a bit of an understatement, right? In doing the prep for this, you found an article that explained 
there are hundreds of thousands of indi individual part that make these different modules, dozens of modules, very complex, smaller pieces of equipment that all go into making a whole EUV lithography mm -hmm. machine. So in addition to just building the machine, there's also the complexity of then transporting it. And then once it's installed in a chip fab, ASML actually has an employee that has to be there helping operate the EUV lithography equipment in the chip fab company's fab. So it's not just selling like a power tool and then saying, here you go, best of luck, follow this manual and, and you'll be good. I was reading about the size of these machines. It said it's, it's the size of a small school bus. Is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. And Intel had a really great video of the machines installed in the D1X facility in Oregon, which we'll link in the description so you can take a look at it. But it mentions that it took three Boeing 747 cargo planes, mm -hmm. 40 freight containers, and 20 trucks to just deliver the machine wow. to that facility. It weighs nearly 200 tons. Yeah, that's mind-boggling. An IKEA box is pretty daunting, but this is like thousands of IKEA boxes showing up on your doorstep all at once. So a little history on the EUV machine. These machines were decades in the making. Mm -hmm. Research started on it, on the technology in the 1980s. And then in 1994, the, they created the first prototype. Mm -hmm. And then there's tests and demos that went on for many years. And then in 2010, the first twin scan 3100 was shipped. Wow. Yeah. And so at the beginning of 2020, actually, was when they shipped their 100th unit. Okay. So there's not even that many of them in existence in the first place. No, exactly. Mm. So you can see that this company has been developing this technology for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. They really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Currently, even under the ban with China, ASML has been able to continue to ship DUV or deep ultraviolet machines to Huawei and other Chinese chip manufacturers. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Okay. So can you explain the difference between a DUV and an EUV machine? Okay, yes. So maybe we should actually back up for just a second and maybe first define what lithography equipment is in the first place, specifically photolithography. Okay. So lithography is when a silicone wafer, those are the big round disks that you sometimes see people in a white bunny suit holding in, in a chip fab. When they are coated with a material sensitive to light called a resist, and then a light is shined on the wafer, over the light, there's a reticle or a template of different lines that basically alter a pattern onto the surface of the silicone wafer. And so the parts of, of the light, the lines that shine through the reticle and hit the wafer, the resist reacts with that, and then the rest does not. And so then the next step after the lithography step is called etch. It's where the, the resist material is removed and it reveals all these lines and channels that have been drawn, I guess you could say, on the actual disc. And etch is where like a company like Applied Materials or LAM Research would come in on the next step. But that's the lithography step has to come first and that's where ASML comes in. So as to your question as to the light itself, deep ultraviolet versus extreme ultraviolet, DUV and EUV. So if you remember back to your physics class, have recalled that light travels in waves and then the distance between the peaks in those waves determines the color of the light that we can observe with our eyes, the visible spectrum. 
So on that same spectrum are things like infrared and radar. That's to the right of red of what we can see. To the right of red, we can't see, but that's where things like radar reside. And then to the left of blue and purple are things like ultraviolet light. Again, we can't see ultraviolet, but it's there. It's a short wavelength that's to the left of blue and purple. So the chip industry has, as it's developed over the decades, has found out that by using ultraviolet light on the left side of the spectrum, those really short wavelengths in, in the light allow them to continuously miniaturize those patterns on the silicone wafer. So the further left, basically they go into ultraviolet, they can get smaller and smaller patterns on the surface of the wafer, which is what creates these incredibly powerful chips. And so DUV is the longer wavelengths. EUV is a very special technology requiring special lasers, a whole module of mirrors that shrink that that wavelength down even more, down to 30 nanometers and and less so that we can get those most advanced chips. And so that's where the patent that ASML has comes in on that extreme ultraviolet light, special lasers, special mirrors, and a whole bunch of other modules Mm -hmm. that make this incredibly complex process place. It's really cool, really complex stuff. Mm -hmm. So up until this point, Huawei has had DUV capability which has limited their chip design, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can only go so far with DUV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The U.S. sanctions, of course, were against leading-edge technology, EUV machines being sent to China. So how did China make the 7-nanometer chip? It would seem that China used only DUV technology in making these small chips. So, Nick, how do we think this happened? Yes, Casey, there was, of course, even in the comment section on some of our videos, some speculation that maybe Huawei had developed and patented its own EUV lithography machine. In fact, that video that we just showed the clip from back in December, that was the news back then that Huawei and possibly its manufacturing partner, SMIC, had been working on its own EUV machine. But that's likely not what has happened here. The more likely situation is that SMIC and Huawei have probably figured out how to craft seven nanometer chips using DUV, deep ultraviolet lithography, using what's called double patterning techniques. So this is when the lithography machine is used at least twice, oftentimes multiple times to shine the light and craft these patterns on the chip, parts of the chip exposed to the light are stripped away, and then a second pass is made, creating more features on the chip. And in doing so, think of it this way. Previously, they had 14 nanometer features. That's referring to the size of the actual transistor, the electric gate that can be switched on and off in these processors. It's 14 nanometers, uh, but by doing a single pass and then slightly offsetting the second pass with the lithography machine, they can whittle that 14 nanometers down to just seven by doing that second pass slightly offset from the first one. So to help illustrate this multiple patterning and how they can split the dimensions down to smaller, more fine features, 
This is on semiengineering.com. And some of these charts are originally provided by Mentor Graphics or Siemens. So a link to that to help illustrate how this is possibly being accomplished. I will mention here though, Casey, so seven nanometer, it looks like has been achieved at least in part, but you pointed this out about the phones themselves. It seems like only a few of these phones feature these most advanced Huawei chips. Why is that, Casey? At least why do we think that is? As far as I can tell, the, the, the phone has already sold out in China. And so it would seem that there's just not enough of these seven nanometer chips to make these phones with this capability. To achieve the seven nanometer size, they've had to decrease the yield of these wafers. Basically, there's fewer usable chips per wafer when making these seven nanometer chips using DUV lithography. There is technology out there that does make this multi-pattern lithography process more efficient. One of them is a new machine from Applied Materials called the Sculpta. Aptly named, Applied Materials calls this pattern sculpting. A link to that video here as well that we did earlier this year in 2023. But because of the sanctions on exports to mainland China, the Sculpta, not only is it a new machine, there probably are not that many of them out there right now, but you can bet almost for certain that these things are probably also off limits to export to China from Applied Materials. China, interestingly enough, just also announced its own roughly equivalent to 40 billion US dollar to support its domestic chip manufacturing and chip design and manufacturing industry. So they've been cut out of the most advanced equipment developed in the States, but they're figuring out ways to forge their own path forward to make their most advanced chips. So this is a developing situation. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Casey, there's probably going to be some ramifications of this for the U.S. semiconductor industry. What are some potential outcomes here that we should be keeping an eye on? One big one, especially for us, is its effect on Qualcomm. Yes. And of course, Qualcomm, since we made this a top pick earlier this year, undergoing some other issues with its business as well. So definitely worth monitoring to see if they lose some orders from Huawei later this year and next. Again, assuming if Huawei is able to crank out enough of those advanced chips to power that new flagship phone. In addition to that, Casey, I think even bigger ramifications for the industry overall is if the U.S. and other trade partners try to expand the sanctions on exports to China. So in particular, I'm thinking of ASML just recently reported its quarter and it's getting some phenomenal growth from DUV, deep ultraviolet machine sales to mainland China. And there were some analyst questions about is mainland China stockpiling DUV machines? We speculated, yes, that might be part of what's going on here. And this new seven nanometer chip certainly seems like, yes, that is actually what's going on. And it would seem that if Huawei and SMIC were just monitoring to see what, what was going to be the reception of this new flagship phone powered by the seven nanometer chip, 
if it's good enough and there's some government backing, maybe they can deploy this new army of SML DUV machines to ramp up production of their own homegrown seven nanometer chip process. So it'll be interesting, perhaps also potentially concerning to see if there's a response from the US and the Netherlands and further limiting what ASML can sell to mainland China. So that could have a big impact on ASML. Of course, the long-term story for ASML is not just mainland China. EUV lithography is going to be needed from Intel, from Samsung, SK Hynix, from Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. So lots of other growth driving the company forward besides these DUV sales. But at least in 2023, DUV has been a, a top top performing segment for the company. Yeah. Speaking about ASML, I saw a report this morning that they plan to ship their first high NA machine this year and hoping that eventually in 2025, Intel will be the first buyer of the commercial use machine. And the report is that machine is going to cost $300 million. Yeah. And that's a big jump in price too, because the current generation EUV machines are about or approaching $200 million each. So those high NA machines up to 300 million, at least that's what it looks like it's going to cost. Could be, this is probably still a long-term growth story, but this news out of mainland China certainly could cause some bumps in the road, at least in the short to midterm for ASML if sanctions are ramped up. Let's maybe hope for everybody learning and figuring out how to get along. Speaking of everyone just getting along, we really believe that private equity company SoftBank really just wants your cash. So let's talk about Arm Holding and its upcoming IPO. Nick, give us a background on Arm Holding and how SoftBank acquired this company. Yes, Arm Holding. So Casey, let's pull out your semiconductor industry flowchart to get a little background on what this company is. So it falls into this category of chip patent holders and licensor companies there at the top. And so they count uh, fabulous chip designers, chip fabs, IDMs, and uh, a whole host of other companies, even tech equipment and system designers like Google, like Amazon, AWS, as they design some of their own chips for use in their data centers. So uh, all sorts of customers that ARM sells chip architecture designs to. So chip architectures, primarily CPUs, central processing units, as well as uh, some other related technology. Specifically, this surrounds ISAs or instruction set architectures. This is the technology that acts as the go-between of the actual chip itself and the eventual software that those chips support, that those chips crunch, crunch the numbers for. So that in-between layer, the ISA, the instruction set architecture is a very important part of the puzzle here because it tells the CPU how to actually operate. The x86 architecture has been around for many decades, and Intel is the one that gets licensing revenue 
from x86, primarily from longtime rival AMD, that back in 1990, a joint venture was funded by Apple, a company called VLSI Technology, and Acorn Computers. Of course, Apple, the only company left remaining from this, these original founders of this joint venture, but they founded a company that would eventually go on to be called Arm Holding. Originally, it was called Advanced Risk Machines. And RISC stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. So these companies saw a need for a more efficient instruction set, a more efficient ISA than what x86 offered. So in 1990, this joint venture arm was founded to develop chips that had a simplified instruction set. And as a result of a simplified instruction set, it would create a chip that was more energy efficient. So that's where ARM got its start. We're going to fast forward here because we all know the history of Apple and what it's been able to do with ARM architecture. It's what powers the iPhone and now MacBooks. They've completely broken free from Intel and x86 architecture at this point. But back in 2016, SoftBank, Japanese investment holding company and private equity fund through their vision fund, private equity venture capital investor, acquired ARM holding for $32 billion in 2016. So this is actually a re-IPO, we should say, because SoftBank wants to sell some of its shares on the open market. It looks like they're going to be selling a roughly 10% stake on the open market. So this is a re-IPO of ARM holding. And it looks like the IPO will price on roughly September 13th. It is of note that NVIDIA tried to acquire ARM Holding in 2020, and then they terminated the agreement in February of 2022 because of regulatory scrutiny and challenges. The, the deal got terminated. It would seem to me that a lot of investors are very interested in ARM because of knowing this fact that NVIDIA thought that the company was valuable enough to acquire it. However, there are some factors that are a bit different for the average investor versus major companies, as you mentioned, Nick, like NVIDIA. They have their own reasons for wanting a company like this, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Let's talk about the business model of ARM and how, how they make money. Okay, that's a good next step, Casey. So they generate most of their revenue in two ways. First is licensing fees. That's when a customer like Apple pays a license to access either a single CPU design or a whole library of CPU designs and accompanying technology. So licensing fees. And then the second is royalties. Royalties are paid whenever a chip is manufactured and sold. And those royalties are usually, the, the fee paid is negotiated in advance. It's usually either a percentage of the chip's value or it's a fixed fee per chip manufactured and then installed in a computing system. So licensing and royalties, which is, again, just referring to the semiconductor industry flowchart, a hallmark of this particular part of the chip patent and licensing part of the industry. We cover a number of companies that dabble in this space. Qualcomm has a very large patent and licensing segment. Synopsys and Cadence Design 
both have chip patent and licensing businesses. Universal Display, which has a very large library of patents in OLED. Those are actually the, the very energy efficient, ultra high def screens on most high-end and mid-range smartphones these days. So a lot of companies in this space, and this is where we need to place ARM as well. That's how they make their revenue is basically just making money off of their engineering and resulting patents that they get on things that they're able to protect their intellectual property. And it would seem based on the customers that ARM has, as you mentioned, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA data centers, all of these very large companies are the customers of ARM. You pointed out a graphic that they used in the prospectus that is interesting. ARM's, let's say, worth around $50 billion in market cap. Its customers are worth trillions in market cap. So you could really say that they're the foundation. They are using ARM architecture and ARM software, but this company is very small in comparison to these very large competitors. Yeah, it is foundational. ARM's designs and patents are foundational to, at this point, basically the whole IT sector of the global economy. We're talking four or five trillion dollars a year in global annual spend. And so my issue with this first graphic when I pulled up the prospectus almost a month ago was, okay, a pyramid shape is fine, but ARM doesn't comprise the largest part of the pyramid. It's reversed because th that's the issue with the patent licensing business. It is foundational, but it doesn't scale like the other parts of the industry. So the pyramid needs to be flipped. ARM is foundational, but it's the small part of the pyramid. And then their chip customers scale much larger. They take these patents, they sell chips, they do some design work of their own and sell the chips, sell some software components of that. And then software built on top of that is even larger. It scales even larger to say that software is infinitely scalable. By that, we mean you can sell it as many times as there's a customer in existence that might need it. That's my first issue with the ARM IPO. I, I don't like this graphic that they stuck in here. I, I feel like this is the first sign that SoftBank is trying to hype this thing or overhype this thing, maybe I should say. I will say that I understand the point of the graphic. Ultimately, what they're trying to say is ARM is a foundational company, and that is true as we've determined, but it's just semantics maybe. Let's talk about the growth rate of this company, the total addressable market, and then we'll delve into some of the financials. Currently, they estimate that 70% of the world's population uses ARM-based products, and they are saying that the, the estimate for the total addressable market will grow at nearly a 7% average annual clip through 2025. What does that equate to, Nick? I, I think the main takeaway here is 7% average annual growth from now through 2025. Let's just say the next two to three years. That's industry average, maybe slightly below industry average if we're anticipating a big run-up in chip design and chip making over the next two to three years, especially if you're looking at the GPU market 
aimed at generative AI. You know, NVIDIA currently the dominant force there, but even more mature chips and some novel materials used to make them like silicon carbide, supporting electrification of everything, especially electric vehicles. That's the industry that sort of embodies that movement. Even that more mature chip manufacturing technology expected to grow in far in excess of, of 7%. So if you take the semiconductor industry as a whole, and let's say it grows an average of seven to 8% over the next two to three years, ARM's prediction is it, it, it's going to be a market perform business, not a market outperform business. It's also important to remember that although ARM just licenses chip designs, the royalty revenue can be highly variable because it's tied to that cyclicality of manufacturing. So, for instance, this year, it means declining sales, especially from the smartphone market, as we've discussed, which makes up a big part of ARM's revenue, such as from companies like Apple, Qualcomm, and some China smartphone makers as well like Huawei. Let's move into some of the specific of ARM's financials that they released in the prospectus. We have two charts prepared for the fiscal year revenue and operating income for the last three years, 2021, 2022, and 2023, ending in March 31st of each year. And then we have a chart for the fiscal quarter ending in June, the last two years. Nick, can you tell us a little bit more about what we see going on in these charts? Casey, I'm just going to pick the the last numbers here from the last fiscal year and the last quarter. So you can see the fiscal year ended in March 2023, 2.68 billion in revenue, operating income of 671 million. That's an operating profit margin of 25%. So this is a, a decently profitable company. But I will just point out, even coming off of a boom year, is remember ARM, like you mentioned, Casey, highly tied to the smartphone market. We had that explosion in smartphone sales early on in the pandemic when everyone was stuck at home and we all decided, hey, let's just upgrade our tech devices. Even coming off of a boom year, 25% operating margins, it's decently profitable, but certainly not at all the most profitable company you can find in the industry. And, and then moving to the, the last quarter that just wrapped up in at the end of June, you can see what happens to the company coming off of that boom now. Revenue just down slightly, 2.5% year over year in revenue to $675 million. But because of the timing of some of those licensing deals and the timing of royalties tied to the manufacturer of the chips, it, you can see the operating income absolutely plummet down to 111 million compared to 294 million the same quarter last year. That's a huge drop. So even though ARM is this asset light business that just focuses on engineering and then selling access to its patents, you can't look at it and be like, wow, this is a ridiculously profitable business. I compare that to, to Qualcomm's technology licensing business, QTL, they report it as QTL when you see Qualcomm's earnings reports, <laughs> something like 60 to 70% EBITDA margins, earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization, typically 
when you're talking about businesses in this part of the industry and maybe not so much for ARM. I have questions about the business model. In ARM's prospectus, I will read the ARM total access agreements. Now, this is the agreements that are signed by ARM customers. It says, under an ARM total access agreement, we license a portfolio of CPU designs and related technologies to a customer in return for an annual fee determined at execution of the agreement. We retain the right from time to time to add or remove specific products from the package. The agreement is for a fixed term and may limit the number of concurrent chip designs that may use products from the package. And then it also has an ARM flexible access agreement. It says, unlike the ARM total access license, the package of products licensed pursuant to an ARM flexible access agreement will not contain the latest products. Customers are free to experiment with products contained in this package, but they must pay a single use license fee for specific products if they include ARM products in the final chip design tape out. Nick, can you explain to us what these two portions of the business model mean for ARM customers? Yeah, there there were numerous reports, especially earlier this year, Casey, when it, the news was starting to make the rounds that ARM was going to uh, probably IPO this year, that the company has been trying to move more of its customers to these total access fee agreements in, in a way to try to increase ARM's own revenue. In addition to that, there were also reports that they're trying to extend some of these licenses to device manufacturers as well to try to get a cut of the value of the device itself if it's powered by an ARM chip. So we are definitely not calling ARM a patent troll, but this is the risk in this business is that you sour your relationship with your customers because you, you reach a certain point where your business can no longer scale, as I just mentioned here. And in the past, a lot of companies that play in this part of the market have all of a sudden not played very nice with their customers and they try to juice what they earn from their patents and, and the license of those patents when they see their customers making more money than them. We did a video on Rhombus a couple months back and that's what Rhombus did in the late 90s and 2000s when growth in their memory technology portfolios got topped out and they became this unfriendly partner to work with. So maybe that's not where ARM is headed, but that is the risk. You hear some of these reports that would seem to indicate one of two things in my mind. ARM's best days of growth are maybe in the rearview mirror. It's still a moderate growth company, but not a high growth business anymore. That's, I think, the first implication. And the second is maybe ahead of the IPO, SoftBank was looking for ways to boost revenue and profit so that they could fetch a higher price from investors. Those are the two things that stood out to me in reading some of this information. That's how ARM makes money. That's their financials. Let's agree. Not the fastest growing business anymore. Definitely not the most profitable business in the chip industry. What is the valuation that SoftBank is looking to get on ARM? It was significantly higher earlier in the year, but it seems to have settled near the $52 billion mark. 
It's a hefty price tag, isn't it? Arm hauled in $671 million in operating profit last year, which is over 100 times trailing 12-month operating income. And as we mentioned, it's on track for a significant dip this year. Yeah, Casey, I, I think that is the biggest issue here is valuation. I'll mention we do have a rule with our portfolio, and the rule is we do not typically buy a fresh IPO for at least six months. Oftentimes it's a year. I've broken that rule a few times. A couple of them have worked out. One of them is CrowdStrike, which we covered earlier this week. But by and large, this rule works very well. IPOs, once they hit the publicly traded market, what's happened is you have a bunch of early investors You've probably seen the media reports that are calling them for ARM anchor investors. They're Intel, they're NVIDIA, they're your Qualcomm, all, all the tech companies lining up to make an investment in this company. But the price that they pay is not the same price that you're going to pay when the stock actually trades on the open market. When that stock hits the publicly traded market, that price is reflecting all of the supply and demand of the stock that traded hands privately between SoftBank, the selling shareholder, and all the investors that they're getting. So two things to bear in mind here. First, I, I think we covered this when we talked about Sentinel-1. This is not a typical IPO because typically a company is going to IPO because they want to raise cash. That's not what's happening here. Arm isn't really having this IPO because they're raising cash. This IPO is happening because SoftBank wants to raise cash and they're going to retain the majority ownership of ARM. And so you have a, a large controlling shareholder that probably does not have the same goals as you do as an individual investor. That's the first thing. And then all of these other customers lining up to buy some shares of ARM from SoftBank most of them are customers in one way or another of ARM. And so they're looking for a way to cement and forge that commercial relationship that they have with ARM in case there is some change in shareholder structure or in case ARM tries to change business terms later on down the road. They have very different reasons for buying the stock than you and I and, and all of you as individual investors. And Casey, I know you have some thoughts on, on companies like SoftBank that sell just a, a little bit of their stock and maintain majority ownership of the company. Yeah. I feel like they're heading on to an episode of Pawn Stars. And <laughs> we talked about this with Intel and its subsidiary company, Mobileye. They've done the same thing. They've sold these portions of the business to raise cash. SoftBank is doing the same thing with ARM. They're going to own 90% of the company, but only pawning some of these sh shares to investors. Yeah, I'll also mention this is a similar dynamic that has happened with VinFast as well, the uh, Vietnam-based startup. They only sold 1% of the total business, which has kept the valuation ludicrously high. And that's probably being too generous to say it's ludicrously high. It's probably worse than that. And they treat it like their own little personal piggy bank. You maintain the majority 
of the shares with yourself. And then you can just sell little bits and pieces as you see fit or as you want the cash for something else. I don't know. It's not a great situation for individual retail shareholders. There's another risk worth mentioning, and that's Arm China. Back when NVIDIA was trying to acquire it, Arm's China business went rogue, you could say. It seems like the relationship is patched up, but it's definitely worth noting that Arm China is an independent business. Arm Holding sells licenses and gets royalties from Arm China, but it does not own Arm China. That's a real wild card, and mainland China made up 25% of Arm Holdings revenue last year. So there's a significant risk given this tenuous relationship. The Arm prospectus didn't exactly inspire confidence in this regard, admitting that Arm China is this independent operation and is the only access Arm Holding has to the mainland, which is a very large market. This also ties in with our discussion of Huawei and SMIC a few minutes ago, too. If the U.S. decides to ramp up restrictions to China to try to hobble its domestic chip production, perhaps ARM could lose out on revenue in this department. Before we conclude with our final thought on the ARM holding IPO, let's talk briefly about competition. And Nick, you mentioned it earlier in the episode, Risk 5. We know that this has limited use right now, but many companies are investing because it's open source. And so there's none of these royalties or licensing fees on chips. Risk 5 is currently used in custom embedded chips like microprocessors, and there is limited software support. But this also used to be the same argument that was holding up ARM once upon a time as well. Yeah, absolutely, Casey. And so this is similar technology as ARM, Risk. It's the same acronym that, that used to be an ARM's name once upon a time when it was founded by Apple and others, reduced instruction set computer. So it's a similar technology to ARM. But again, like you said, the benefit, the licensing fees, the royalties, because it's open source architecture. And we've already seen a number of investments being made into this. Intel Foundry Services, that's the manufacturing portion of Intel that we really would like to see get spun off from Intel overall, from the design house and see a, a full separation between the two, recently said it is going to be supporting RISC-V architecture. They also, after Intel ended support for RISC-V last year, now Foundry Services, IFS, saying they are going to support it. It looks like they're trying to appeal to chip designers because there's this growing interest in cutting costs. There was also the news that Qualcomm set up this new joint venture with other mobile device designers like Nordic Semiconductor, NXP Semiconductors, Robert Bosch, Finion, specifically wanting to use RISC-V in automotive designs. And the rationale here is, is pretty simple. Paying licensing and royalty fees to ARM can get very expensive. Chip design is only getting more complicated and complex. The expenses now to start and bring a chip from design all the way to final manufacture can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So anywhere where you can get cost savings, you're going to take it. So I think a lot of companies interested in investing in RISC-V and getting the technology ready for more advanced computing workloads like cloud computing, data centers, 
and getting the uh, software support up to speed as well. Because again, like you said, Casey, this used to be the argument against ARM. Oh, it's not that advanced of a chip. There's no software support. Apple primarily and a lot of others changed that with continuous investment over the course of decades. And now ARM perfectly capable of running advanced workloads, just like x86 chips, very powerful, more energy efficient. And so we think the next generation going forward of this stuff is not just small, but mighty chips, energy efficient chips, but also open architecture so that companies can save on that operating expense. I would say the final takeaway for us is that we are not going to be investing in ARM at this point. We would much rather invest in some of its customers. That's a wrap for today, folks. Take care. Chipstock Investors, Nick and Casey, signing off for the day. 